All right. We're going to uh, kind of alter what has been the normal rhythm a little bit and, and have some extended time of worship on the backside of the sermon when we take communion. And so if you look down underneath your seat, um, you should have a, a cup for communion that's got both the uh, little wafer and the, the juice in there. If you don't have one of these, um, you can run out and grab one of our uh, ushers or a staff person and they'll make sure to get you one. Um, if you're watching at home and you want to be able to take communion with us, if you just want to like pause the video and just be a couple minutes behind us and go grab yourself some elements so that you'll be ready when we're done, uh, we would encourage you to do that. We're going to finish the book of Jude this morning, so if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. Last week, we saw what is the like, primary encouragement for how it is that we are to contend for the faith. And that encouragement is by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Contending for the faith, that's the primary charge of the book. This is what Jude wants his readers to do, contend for the faith. And then he lays out in the middle portion of the book exactly who or sort of what it is that we are to contend against or to contend for this notion that you can spot an imposter, someone who's come into your congregation by stealth. You can spot them if you know what to look for. And then the means by which we contend is keeping ourselves in the love of God. So the question then is, how do we do that? And that is where the book of Jude ends. And the answer is that we contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And the way we keep ourselves in the love of God is not anything tricky or difficult. It's not something that needs a ton of explanation. And you'll see that when we read this in just a few moments. It's more or less by just routinely doing the fundamentals of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When we read through this all the way start to finish as we've been doing each week, notice when we get down to verses 20 to 25 how little time Jude spends explaining what it is that he's talking about. In fact, when we read it, you're going to notice he kind of starts rapid fire saying some things that he wants his readers to do, and he offers no explanation for them. Just says, this is what you're supposed to do, and assumes that his readers know what that means, and so he just moves through it very, very quickly. We're going to read all of the book of Jude, verses 1 to 25, as we've done each week over the five weeks that we've been in this series, and as we do so, I want us to do that the way it is that we did this the first week, which is let's stand and listen to the word of the Lord. This is the word of God through Jude. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, 
Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's air for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we just want to join with Jude and offer a a prayer to you, God, that's just a statement of what is already yours. God, would all glory be yours? Would all majesty be yours? God, would all power be yours? All authority be yours? be yours. God, and would they be yours now and forevermore? Lord, we know that those things are ultimately true, that for all of eternity, all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the power, and all of the authority is yours, Lord. But I pray that that would be true in our lives, God, that we would daily submit ourselves so that each and every one of us in our own lives would give all the glory to you, would allow all the majesty to be yours, would understand and live in submission to the fact that all power is yours. And having Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as our master, that all authority would be yours. And that that would be true for each and every one of us now until the day that we die and then for all of eternity. God, the glory is yours. The majesty is yours. The power and the authority are yours. God, and it is with joy that we recognize that they are yours for now, are now and forevermore. 
Lord, we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. What we're going to do this morning, verses 20 to 25, it's six verses. Everything is going to move in kind of like two verse chunks, if you will. And we're just going to be rehashing sort of the fundamentals of what it is to be a Christian, to live as a Christian, to keep ourselves in the love of God as a Christian, and ultimately what it is to contend for the faith as followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to see some fundamental practices, some fundamental postures, and then the fundamentals of our praise for the Lord. And this is the main point. You're going to hear me say this over and over. It's going to be a regular rhythm throughout the next 35 minutes or so, that the task of contending for the faith is ours, but it is not one we do alone. The task is ours, but it is not one that we do alone. Not long ago, I was listening to an interview um, of Phil Jackson, longtime coach of the Chicago Bulls, as well as the Los Angeles Lakers. And someone was asking him what it was that made his teams so great. And he gave kind of a lengthy answer, but right in the middle, he said something very interesting. He said that what distinguishes either great teams from sort of average teams or great individual athletes from average athletes is that they master the fundamentals. They are experts at the fundamentals, which means that while more average teams or average players are having to think about the basics of basketball. Experts or masters don't think about. Those things are on autopilot for them. And they're able to give their attention to other things. It's the fundamentals of Christian discipleship that are the building blocks of contending for the faith. You want to do well at contending for the truth of Jesus Christ? You've got to master the fundamentals of following Jesus. I think oftentimes what we want to be able to do is to be able to give these very nuanced arguments and we want to lock all of the facts into our brains and then be able to just regurgitate those whenever the time comes. And yet, at the same time, all of the studies and all of the statistics would say that within the American church, particularly the suburban American church, particularly the suburban American church in the Bible Belt area of the nation, has largely failed at the task of discipleship as both churches and as individuals. That the daily tasks of like reading our Bibles and praying and spending time meditating on the truths of God are things that we don't do well. And so while we're trying to cram in all of the facts, we're not doing a great job at just simply living in relationship with Jesus. And if we're going to contend well for the faith, it's not primarily because we've crammed all the facts in. It's primarily because we're keeping ourselves in the love of God. We're walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is where the central sort of encouragement for how it is that we contend for the faith comes. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Fundamental practices. Now, when I use the word fundamental throughout this message, throughout this sermon, I'm not talking about like fundamentalism or being fundamentalists. I'm talking about the basics of walking with Jesus. 
the primary command here, in fact, the only actual imperative in this sentence is to keep yourselves in the love of God. The other things that surround it are the means by which you do that. And so the first one that shows up, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Build yourselves up in the faith. That is the task of discipleship. We make a big deal out of discipleship here. It's part of the core of who we are as a church. It's fundamental. It was one of the last things that Jesus said to his followers before commissioning them and sending them out to carry the message of the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The faith. Build yourselves up in the faith. Remember, that's about the whole of Christian doctrine, not just your personal belief. We talked about this at the start of the book of Jude, that the faith is all of what is wrapped up in Christianity, who God is, who humanity is, who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what Jesus accomplished, who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit's role is, what it means to live in relationship with God through Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, why it matters that Jesus will return one day, and everything in between. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the faith. And scripture makes it clear that there is a role of discipleship for every individual within God's people. Older women, build up younger women. Older men, build up younger men. Parents, build up children. Pastors, build up the congregation. And the key is that we don't expect someone else to do that for us or on behalf of us or in place of us. That the commission to go and make disciples is something that was given to each of us as individuals. The charge of discipleship is for each believer individually and for the church collectively, that we would do the work of building ourselves and building one another up in the faith. Discipleship is something that the church does collectively, but it's something that the church does collectively as a group of individuals. It's something that each person does as a member of the whole. It's a commission that Jesus gave to the church but that must be embodied and carried out by each and every one of us who make up the church. How is it that we will keep ourselves in the love of God? Through the task of discipleship. That's one of the means by which we will do that, building ourselves up in the most holy faith. And remember, keeping ourselves in the love of God is something that we do as an individual, but it's not something that we do alone. What did Jesus say when he gave the great commission? He started it by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he finished it by saying, and behold, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. So as the church goes and carries out the act of discipleship, who is empowering it? The one with all the authority, the one who is with us in the process. We don't do the task of discipleship on our own. We do it empowered by God himself. The task is ours, but it's not one that we do alone. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. The second piece, praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer. Prayer is a fundamental of walking with Jesus. Imagine living as though communication with the sovereign ruler of the universe was unimportant. For a Christian, that that thought should be entirely unthinkable. Sure, 
We can learn and grow in our understanding of prayer. We can learn and grow in our practice of prayer, but it ought to be core to who we are. Imagine thinking that you could be married and yet never speak to your spouse. Not possible. And that's the way God describes his relationship with the church, bride and groom. So central is the act of prayer to the life of God's people that you can't hardly read a single book of the Bible without finding recorded within it the prayers of God's people. So central is the act of prayer to the life of God's people that the longest book of the Bible by chapter is a book of recorded prayers. That's Psalms. The longest single chapter in the Bible is a recorded prayer. Psalm 119. So central is the act of prayer to the life of God's people that he has told us that in his sovereignty, God has chosen and ordained the prayers of his people to be the means by which he acts in history. Think about that. The sovereign God of the universe who holds time in his hands and has laid out every day of your life and of all of history has said the means by which I will act inside time is by the prayers of my people. That's how central it is. That's how fundamental it is. So central is the act of prayer to the life of God's people that the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father in order to intercede on our behalf. Prayer, it's fundamental. How are you going to keep yourselves in the love of God? One of the ways is through prayer. And again, the task is ours, but it's not one that we do alone. Scripture tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit will intercede on our behalf. Scripture tells us that right now, taking our prayers and communicating them to the Father is the Son. Empowers our prayers. Presents our prayers. It's not something we do on our own. And then on the backside of that command to keep yourselves in the love of God, is the statement, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Waiting expectantly, hopefulness. There's your third fundamental practice. Hopefulness, hope, is a practice. It's something that we do because of who we are. A Christian is a person of hope. Hope that sin does not have the final say, not in your life or in this world. Hope that one day all the brokenness of this world is going to be made right. Hope that God can make right that brokenness in your life, in the lives of those around you, and in the the life of our world. He can make that right, right now. Hope that sin does not have to unchangingly hold sway in even the most broken person's life. Hope that Jesus is going to come again, and that when he does, this broken world will pass away. Hope that when he does come again, perfect justice will come with him. Hope that when he does come again, an eternity of perfect communion with God will be ushered in. A Christian is a person of hope. Hope that mercy is going to win the day for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Hope that when we stand before the Father, the Son will have already absorbed our punishment in our place. Hope that what will mark us when we stand before God in our final moment of judgment is not the stain of our own sin, but the sparkling white robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Hope that our moment of seeing God face to face will be a moment of unrelenting joy, not one of everlasting punishment. A Christian is a person of hope. And it's a practice. It's something we have to grow in. Because it would be easy to just flip on the news or grab a newspaper 
and lose all hope. Not just all hope that things could be made right, but it would be easy to flip on the news or grab a newspaper and lose all hope that God is even paying attention to what is going on here. Hopefulness is a practice. It's something we have to learn and grow at. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? You master the fundamentals. You build yourself up in the most holy faith. You pray in the Holy Spirit. You wait expectantly. You hope for the mercy of God. And just really quickly, if you just... Look at the two verses that we walked through right there. What is astounding and remarkable is that the entirety of the Trinity is present. Keep yourselves in the love of God, the Father. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. Praying in the Holy Spirit. All three. The task is ours, but it is not one that we do alone. You want to contend for the faith? You're going to have to do that, but you don't fly solo. God is present with you. Those are the practices. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This is about posture. We're going to contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And these are some practices that we put around that, some fundamentals. What's the posture with which we do this? The overriding umbrella here is one of humility. It's not stated there, but as we walk through this, what you're going to see is that humility is the key. It's the umbrella that the rest of these qualities are going to live under. Without humility, the others will not, cannot be present. One of the fundamental changes that happens in the life of a person who's been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ is that they ultimately go from a person who's mostly concerned about themselves to a person who is mostly concerned about something other than themselves. One of the fundamental changes that happens to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are saved by the grace of God is that we go from a person of pride to being a person of humility. And that's a lifelong growth process. It's not just a a switch that flips overnight, but it's something that happens to us progressively. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more deeply we understand the truth of the gospel, we grow in humility. Too often, particularly in contentious times. Whether the tension comes from outside the church or inside the church, too often we've bought into the lie and given into the temptation that we can possibly contend for the faith as people without humility. This should not be the case. We don't look at a loss in a broken world and tell people that God hates them. We don't merely put up with the world. We live in it, with it, as those who have the hope for something better. We don't just endure the lost or endure the imposter or just kind of put up with the person who slipped in by stealth to the church. No, we're here on this earth right now to be the means by which God's grace saves those people. And we can't have that kind of presence in the world if we do so without humility. It's impossible. 
And right now, everything in our society screams that what you need to do in order to be heard is to be the loudest, is to be the most condemning, is to other things as hard as possible in order to get people's attention, that in order to be heard and in order to make a presence for Christ, what you need to be able to do is dominate everything else. Not true. Not true at all. Because the beauties of the gospel are incompatible with a bullying spirit. Incompatible. Read the gospels. We're actually gonna start next week in the book of Luke. You can think a lot of things about Jesus, understand a lot of truths about Jesus, but one you're never going to see is that he was a bully. It's not there, and it can't be there in his followers either. It is humility that allows the church to both contend for the faith while also contending for the lost. Without humility, you may think you're contending for the faith, but what you might actually be doing is driving people away from it. And if that has been your posture, I would urge you to repent. Look at how Jude spells this out. How is it that we not only keep ourselves in the love of God, but also contend for the faith? Verse 22, have mercy on those who waver. We do so with a humble sense of mercy. We're not harsh. Someone in our midst is tempted to follow the teaching of an imposter. Come down hard with the truth on the false teaching, not on the one tempted to listen to it. We talked about this a number of weeks ago when we walked through some contemporary, modern, false teachings. There's a heart thing underneath there. Ultimately, that person who wants to follow the prosperity gospel or relativism or whatever the case might be, there's something in their heart that they're longing for, that they're trying to fulfill. Humbly, we can take the truth of God's word and smash the false teaching without crushing the individual but instead displaying for them that what their heart ultimately longs for is found only in the gospel. It's normal for people to have questions throughout a lifetime of walking with Jesus. It's normal for a person to even have doubts throughout a lifetime of walking with Jesus. Hear those questions. Listen to those doubts. Point them back to the truth of scripture. Walk with them in finding answers. Kind of mine out the core of what's happening for them at the heart level and have mercy on them, humbly, because that's what God has had on you, mercy. That's what others have had for you as you've walked through times of questions, as you've walked through times of doubt. Humble mercy. Look at the next piece, verse 23. Save others by snatching them from the fire. A humble sense of compassion. We read the book of Jude and you kind of get this image of like a battlefield. There's the true church contending for the faith and on the other side there are these imposters or there are these false teachings that have come in by stealth and we're just going to war with one another. Now, 
the Bible is very clear that warfare in a spiritual sense is a real thing, that there are false teachings and there's the truth and that veiled behind our eyes and what we cannot see is a very real spiritual battle that's being waged in this place. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. But the image of what we want in our mind when we read the book of Jude is that of a soldier running through a minefield loaded with weapons and ammo, taking no prisoners. And then here comes Jude. Not discounting what Paul says in Ephesians about the armor of God, but instead letting us know that you're probably more akin to the battlefield medic. Protected, armed, but there to save others not to kill. Those being contended against are souls that ought to be contended for. Save others by snatching them from the fire. That requires humble compassion. And as soon as you forget what it was that you were saved from, you lose sight of how it is that we are to handle the lost how it is that we're to handle the broken and the imposter. That's why we talk about wanting to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, that we might never lose sight of what it is that we were saved from, and that would help us have compassion for those who also need to be saved. A humble sense of compassion. I wanna share with you really briefly the story of a man named C.T. Studd. He lived from 1860 to 1931. He was educated at Cambridge University. He was one of the best cricket players alive at the time. I'm not even really sure how cricket works. But he was like the Babe Ruth of cricket at the time. He's like the Pat Mahomes of cricket. He goes to Cambridge University and he becomes a Christian. He ends up walking away from the fame and fortune of cricket, and he becomes part of what was known as the Cambridge Seven, a group of men who decided that they would give up life in Britain in order to go to the mission field through Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. C.T. Studd ended up living a long life on the mission field, ultimately dying in Africa. And when he was asked about the decision that he made to not only walk away from cricket, but to walk away from a life in Britain. He famously said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That is humble compassion. A picture of seeing those that we contend against as those that we are called to contend for. That's the role of the church. Are there people who need to be met with the truth of scripture? Absolutely. Are there systems of theology or ideologies that need to be met with the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. But are the people who are speaking those beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ? No. And they need to be contended for. Last, a humble sense of reverence. Look at the end of verse 23. Have mercy on others, but with fear hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What is this fear? Why, why are we having mercy with fear? The root word here in Greek is phobomai. It's used a number of times throughout scripture. Often it means like a sense of fear that would cause you to like run away from something. 
It's the same word that's used for the fear that uh, Zechariah feels when he sees the angel of the Lord. It's the same fear that Peter tells his readers to have for God in 1 Peter 2.17 when he gives the short command, just two words, fear God. What does it mean for us? Humble reverence. An understanding that God is the one who is the ultimate judge. An understanding that were it not for his grace, we would likely be the same as those that we are contending against and ultimately contending for. A reverence and an understanding that contending for the faith and remaining pure, hating the garment even defiled by flesh, requires great attention and great care. An understanding that if you are going to run that rescue shop within a yard of hell, Satan is probably going to meet you there. He's going to entice your flesh and he will want to drag you down. An understanding that for a lack of care and attention, we could very easily fall prey to the evil that we want so desperately to stand against. It's only by humility and a humble sense of reverence that we understand those things. And so we contend with fear, with mercy and compassion. We run toward those who may not know the truth of who God is, who need correcting in the truth of the gospel. And yet we do so with an understanding that were it not for God's grace and without great care and attention and without the empowering, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit, we very likely could fall into the very sins or false kinds of thinking that we want to contend against. And so we, with humility, have mercy and compassion, but also reverence and fear. That task is one that's ours, but it's not one that we do alone. It's one that we do surrounded by the grace of God. When we keep that in mind, it helps us to have humility, which allows us to have mercy and compassion on those who need to be saved. Last two verses. Jude gets to the very end of this, and then he just kind of explodes into praise. Remember at the very start of the letter, Jude said that he was eager to write about the salvation we share, but the curtains were on fire, so to speak, if you were here at the start of this. And so he had to write about something else. He gets down to the very end and it's like, he just wants to do a little snippet of why he wanted to write. And so he ends with this incredible doxology. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever, amen. there's a fundamental element of praise to the life of a Christian. That if we're going to contend well and keep ourselves in the love of God, we're going to have to maintain. A praise that recognizes that God is able. He's able to protect us from stumbling. He's able to make us stand in the presence of his glory. He's able to present us without blemish thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He's able to give us great joy even in the faith's face of great difficulty. There is a God who is able, and he's able to do even more than what's listed there. He's able to heal those who are broken. He is able to do great miracles in this world. He's able to save those who seem more lost than anyone else. He is able to empower the gospel among those who have no way of hearing it. He is able to draw people to himself. He is able to control the course of history. That God, 
fundamental to our praise is the reality that God is able. Yeah? Yes. Amen. And he's gracious. Just run back through those with me. To him who is able to protect you from stumbling. He didn't have to do that. Not one bit. Adam and Eve eat from the tree in the garden. He doesn't have to do anything in response to saving humanity from the sin that resulted from that. Not one bit. And yet he is gracious. And he will protect those who are his from stumbling out of his grace. He will make us stand in the presence of his glory. When I walk in before the Lord at my moment of judgment, what I'm going to deserve is an eternal punishment. What I'm going to deserve is to fall flat on my face before him and endure all the just wrath that my sin deserves. When I stand before the Lord and he sees the full depth of my sin presented there before him, which is even darker and further beyond anything that I'm probably willing to concede both to the people around me and to myself, what I'm going to deserve is every last drop of punishment. And yet what I'm going to get is Jesus Christ's covering mercy on my behalf and I will be able to stand. That is grace. And every single person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is going to have that grace. He's able and he's gracious to make us stand. And then he goes on because not only is God able and not only is God gracious, he is also worthy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. He deserves all the glory, all the majesty, all the power, all the authority. And the reality is, it's all his anyway. Whether we want to give it to him or not. When our flesh tries to grab hold of some of the glory, tries to grab hold of some of the majesty, wants to resist some of his authority, thinks that God's power is limited in some way, it's all his anyway. The person who lives their life completely opposed to those truths, God's going to get every last drop of glory, even from their life, every last drop of, mercy, or of uh, majesty. He has ultimate authority. A Christian is a person who recognizes that and lives in response to it. A Christian is a person who's unafraid to state outwardly what is true eternally. A Christian is a person who realizes that all the glory is his. All the majesty is his. All the power, all the authority. What is the fundamental element of our praise to God? That he's able, that he's gracious, and that he is worthy. You wanna contend well for the faith? You wanna keep yourselves in the love of God? understand the fundamentals. The fundamentals of discipleship, of prayer, fundamentals of hope and hopefulness, fundamentals of mercy and compassion and reverence, all with a sense of humility, the fundamentals of our praise to a God who's able and who's gracious and is worthy. 
The task of contending for the faith is ours, but it's not one that we do alone. How will you keep yourself in the love of God? You'll do so by grace because he will hold you there. with a heart of praise for the grace of God, with a posture of humility by the grace of God, with a commitment to grace-filled practices. The key to keeping yourself in the love of God is understanding that you will not do it alone. God will keep you in his love, by his love. Your role is to be a humble partner alongside him, giving all the praise to him, living and contending with a posture of humility, mercy, grace, and rever- our mercy, compassion, and reverence, and walking in daily grace-filled, grace-driven practices of discipleship, prayer, and hope. We contend well for the faith by mastering the basics. And those basics are so compelling in the life of a follower of Jesus that even the harshest of opponents would have to take notice. Keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude says, and thus you will contend well for the faith. Simple but not easy. Straightforward, but not always a straight line for the followers of Jesus. I want us to end this morning before we just go into a time of praise by taking communion. Let me explain how this works. We've, we've used these one other time. There's a little flap here that's got like a plastic piece underneath, but there's also a top part that's just like the cellophane. If you peel that back, you get the little wafer. So you can grab that out. And then if you peel the whole thing back, you'll open up the juice. The task of contending for the faith is ours, but it's not one that we do alone. We do it thanks to the grace of God. We do it surrounded by the grace of God. We do that in response to the grace of God. Ultimately, we contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God with eyes locked on Jesus Christ. And so we're just going to take a moment here to remind ourselves of that grace. In your hand is a picture of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. In your hands is a picture of God's grace. That despite all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of the reasons for which God could have left us to our own sin, he sent his son to the cross where his body was broken and his blood was poured out. And the call for followers of Jesus is to live with this so clearly in view that it alters who we are what we do, the way we interact with the world. I read a quote just the other day. In fact, it it might have even been last night sometime. It's been a long week, and so everything kind of blurs together for me. But the person said that at every level, love changes you. Whether in relationship with your children, relationships with a spouse, relationships with friends, love changes you. And this love has changed us entirely. And so, brothers and sisters, I just want to do this as a remembrance of what God has done on our behalf. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ, poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of him.
Our call as followers of Jesus at all times, both in contentious times within the church, contentious times outside the church, but also in times of peace and tranquility, whether inside the church or outside the church, is to contend well for the faith and to do so by keeping ourselves in the love of God. My prayer for us as a church, as we wrap up this series in Jude, my prayer is that we would be people who not only keep ourselves in the love of God, but that we would be people who keep the love of God in front of our eyes at all times. And that by seeing, thinking about, reflecting upon, and being transformed by the love of God, contending for the faith would just be a natural byproduct. That contending for the faith would not be something that we've got to rally ourselves to, but it would be something that's just a reality of who we are. Amen? Amen. We're going to close with just an extended time of worship. So if you want to stand up, we're going to begin by uh, singing a song, Living Hope. Hope is a practice. Hope is also something that's fundamental to the life of a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to begin our time in worship by just singing about this hope that we share. And then we'll continue on in worship with the hope of the gospel squarely in front of our hearts and eyes. Amen.